And we continue in our series on, called Joseph and the Gospel of Many Colors. Thank you for that reading. That is a reading, right? Am I right? We don't mess around here. When we do a reading, we do a reading, all right? And it's so good. It's so good to, to sit in God's Word. I, I'll be honest with you, as a, as a preacher, I haven't done much of this, which is preach on two chapters of narrative. I'm good at like four verses of the Apostle Paul and good might be a stretch, right? But just, I like to do a few verses and this is two chapters and there's so many details and so many things. So here's the goal this morning. It's not to, to do, uh, approach the text as we would if it was um, from the epistles or from the gospels where we'd take a small section and, and really everything has so much meaning in, in, in narrative like this. We're taking broad strokes here and, and we're, we're, we're tackling the key themes, the main points. And when I say key themes, there's this arc in all of Scripture, the, the re- redemptive story, right? And, and God is redeeming all things. And so there's the story in all of Scripture. So how do these two chapters of narrative sink into that and, and settle into that? They, they, they do and they point to Jesus, in fact. And so our goal this morning is to take a couple of chapters from an incredible story and see what they're saying in God's big picture and ultimately about the gospel, okay? So, we'll get going here. Augustine may well be, uh, St. Augustine may well be the most important person in church history um, other than Jesus himself and the apostles. And Augustine, in his younger years, um, was a partier, to put it lightly. He partied. Somebody's guitar started playing right when I said party. That was very odd. It's like, all right, okay, all right. That was good. Thank you for that. Usually we glare. That one was awesome. Um, and, and most of all, uh, as a partier, he was a promiscuous young man. He uh, slept with a lot of women. And um, Jesus, though, partially on, uh, by the prayers of his mother, fervent prayers by his mother, eventually Augustine comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The transformational work of the gospel is sinking into his heart and changing him. So much so that one day he's walking down the street and the young woman woman that he, he, he likes to hook up with saw him walking down the street and, and they made eye contact and he smiled. Carried along and she looked back and said, Augustine. You know, and he, he, he kept walking. and She said, Augustine, it's me. And he looked back at her and said, I know it's you. But it's not me. That's a former life. I have a new life in Jesus Christ. See, lust and sexuality was his master. But now he had a new master. That's not me anymore. I'm someone else in Jesus. And that is the truth for every believer. Our identity is in Jesus. Therefore, our lives are not characterized by sin, but by grace. And this morning, we're looking at a story that is characterized by grace, though filled with sinners. I've entitled it, Transformation, Comfort, Cleansing, and the Power to Change Through Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the very last verse of the chapter, it, it talks about 
and being changed, uh, transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Um, this transformation really is the sanctifying work of God gradually in our lives, but making us more into the image of God that God created us to be. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, and we as well, though there is a massive fracture in that due to sin. And yet to be transformed, to be sanctified means becoming more and more like the image of God himself, becoming more like God the way that he created us to be as his image bearers. And that is transformation, and that is happening. So let's get caught up. Last week, we looked at chapter 42, where uh, there is a famine in the land of Egypt, which uh, God prepared Joseph for by allowing him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. So Egypt have seven years of plenty stockpiled for what they are in now, which is seven, seven years of famine. The surrounding countries as well are facing this salmon. Uh, salmon? Uh, they may have saved some salmon, but it's doubtful. Um, and so um, what they're doing is people in, in Canaan here. Uh, Jacob specifically hears, hey, there's food in Egypt, so go. And he sends his sons there. They're quite reluctant. Why? Well, they sold a brother to slavery in Egypt once upon a time, more than two decades ago, and it still haunts them. But they go, and they encounter Joseph. Joseph knows who they are. They don't know who he is. And yet, near the beginning of chapter 42, his dream from chapter 37 is fulfilled. How? He looks down and recognizes his brothers, and they're bowing to him. They've come for grain. Their sheaves are bowing down to his sheaf. This dream that he had had come true, and Joseph begins to put his brothers through a series of tests. We may think this to be cruel and unusual punishment, but it's not. It's actually mercy. The knowing Joseph is treating the unknowing brothers with grace, and he's actually drawing out repentance and transformation. So led by God, clearly. And so those tests have gone. They have gone back to Jacob in their land. They've told Jacob of everything that happened. And, um, and then we begin in chapter 43. Time has passed. They've used up all the grain. They have no more, and they need to go back. And Jacob says, return. And they say, well, not without Benjamin. That's what we were supposed to do. Joseph made it really clear. You guys are spies unless you bring back Benjamin, this younger brother you speak of, and prove to me that you're not. And I will hold one of your brothers, Simeon, until you come back. Well, Simeon is there. Jacob is fine to send the brothers back without Benjamin, meaning we'll just leave Simeon to his own devices. And the brothers are saying, no, 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 no. Joseph, this governor, said, we will not see his face unless we bring our younger brother with us. It's interesting, at the end of chapter 42, Reuben, the eldest brother, says, you can kill my two sons if I do not bring Benjamin back to you. And Jacob says, no, not doing it. The beginning of chapter 43, Judah steps forward and says, I give my own life as a pledge. I will bring him back to you. And we could have gone there and back by now if you had already sent us. So let's do this. And Jacob says, all right. And so that's where we pick it up here. I want to show you um, the three points, and then we'll work through them together. The first couple are from uh, Genesis chapter 43, and we see envy, these brothers who were once envious, converted to celebration. Envy converted to celebration. Also happening in chapter 43, we see fear, the fear of these brothers, encountered with love. 
loving kindness from Joseph. And then on to chapter 44, we see betrayal substituted for sacrifice. And this is where the lens really focuses in closely on Judah. So let me pray and then we will um, look at these two chapters swiftly. All right. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for the fact that as um, we look at these these verses, these chapters, uh, they, pro- they proclaim you. Thank you, Jesus, that you came that we might have life. And you desired that so much that you laid down your own life so that we could. I praise you for your word that sings of the gospel. I thank you for redemption that is this underlying storyline throughout all of Scripture that you want to draw us to yourself that we may have life. God, I pray you would wake us up for those of us who are sleeping in our hearts. I pray that you would soften, melt hardened hearts here this morning that we may hear of you. And God, for those of us who are devoted, well, Lord, I pray that we would hear what you call us to because it certainly is too much in light of all that you've done. So, Lord, for all of us, God, I pray that you would speak this morning by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I tell you something great about chapter 43? It revolves around food. Anybody here love food? I mean, we're all here because of food. We're only alive because of food. It's kind of fun. Chapter 43 revolves around food. They don't have any in Canaan. Egypt does. So the whole purpose in this, this, this movement to Egypt revolves around food. When they get there and when Joseph sees his youngest brother Benjamin, he says, prepare a meal for them. We're going to have a banquet. And they feast together. That is chapter 43 summarized, and it revolves around food. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty wonderful. Um, but that's just a bonus. It's not really the point. But I want us to look at envy converted to celebration. Let's take a quick look at chapter 37, and we'll look at what's happening in chapter 34. We're going to jump all over the place. Joseph... In chapter 37, right from the get-go of this story, we see is the favored son, is he not? He is most favored by Jacob. He is the firstborn of Rachel, his beloved wife, the the wife that he truly loved. Um, And uh, and he's given special treatment. It's interesting, um, Joseph is the favored son. He is the eldest from Rachel, and yet he's nearly one of the youngest. And then we see, though, that he's given this special treatment as if he's the oldest, and then we see that he's given a gift that none of the others are given, and it's a technicolor dream coat, and he gets it. No one else does, and he gets this special coat. In the Septuagint, in in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it calls it uh, a coat with long sleeves. And so this was a, 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 a robe that reached to the wrists and reached to the ankles. And there's something we need to know about that. There was special treatment involved in that because that's not what somebody who tends to the fields wears. They wear short sleeves or no sleeves and short robes so that they can 
um, do the work in the fields and with the animals. And so clearly by being given a gift like this, he doesn't have to do the kind of work the rest of the brothers do. So he is favored and he is given special treatment. And the brothers hate him and are envious of him. So much so that when they see him approaching in the field one day, they say, let's kill him. And God providentially, as they, they throw him in a pit, they take a break, have a sandwich, they say, let's kill him after we feel nourished. And so they take a, they, they're eating sandwiches, and by God's providence, some Midianite traders come by who are going down to Egypt, and they decide, Judah is initiating this, hey, let's not have his blood on our hands, let's sell him, let's get a profit out of it. We kill him, we don't get anything. We sell him, we get money. Let's just sell him, and then his blood isn't on our hands. So they do that. Now let's fast forward towards the end of chapter 43 and look what happens. Benjamin, as you can see clearly, Jacob hasn't learned any lessons. Joseph's gone. Benjamin's now the favorite. So much so that the first time the brothers go to Egypt, Benjamin stays behind. I can't lose my one and only favorite son, Benjamin. The rest of you go. Must have made the other brothers feel pretty special. You guys go. I don't want harm to come to this one. He hasn't learned a thing. Benjamin, therefore, is still this favored son. He's taken the place of Joseph, and he's given special treatment. By who this time? By Joseph. They have a feast. He's hosting them. And what does he do? He puts Benjamin at a table where he gives him five times more than the rest of the brothers, meaning this. The brothers are sitting in a room where Benjamin's the favored when he's the favorite, and he's given special treatment much more than the rest are given. But do you see what happens at the end of chapter 43? They're they're merry. They celebrate together and enjoy themselves. The exact same situations are happening and a completely different outcome comes about. And Joseph is observing this. He knew how they treated them, but he sees when Benjamin is favored and given special treatment, they have actually changed. The brothers enjoy themselves, they celebrate together, and likely for the first time ever, although the other brothers don't know it, all 12 brothers are together with no envy and celebrating and having a great time. Likely the first time in their lives that this is taking place. The brothers enjoy themselves. They have worked through, worked past envy. Did you know that through the gospel, your envy can be converted to celebration like these brothers? Are you an envious person, a jealous person, a covetous person? What's your heart response when someone around you is earning five times more than you are? Envy? Covetousness? What goes on inside of you when someone close to you gets a gift, gets special treatment that you don't get, and there doesn't seem like a great reason for it? Get envious? Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Here's the thing about envy. When somebody's getting something we're not and we envy that person, they may feel it a little bit. But you know who that robs truly? It robs you. If I am an envious person, it robs me. The thing about envy is it actually robs the person who is envious most. It steals your joy. It's life-sucking, whereas a heart 
at peace is life-giving. And these brothers are in the same set of circumstances that they were before, but this time can celebrate with Benjamin. How in the world can they do that? Same things going on that it was before, and it feels unfair. And yet this time they celebrate. The past has confronted these brothers, and they have found mercy. There is a fascinating book uh, written a few years ago called How People Change by Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp. Uh, I'll give you the Coles notes of it. They, they, ba- they, they boil down how people change to four things. Heat, thorns, the cross, and fruit. Here's what they say in this book, How People Change. They talk about heat being um, the difficulties, the blessings, the temptations of daily life. The goings-on of daily life. This is the heat. Because in daily life, things come around. And, and thorns are our responses to those that are ungodly. The, re, the ungodly response to situations, it, it's this heart-driven behavior and the consequences of them when, when it's, it's the way we shouldn't respond. See, see, the heat comes, but that doesn't mean that we have to respond with the thorns. We don't have to respond in an ungodly way. Stuff comes upon us. We don't have to project ungodliness to it. And yet that's our bent. But enter the cross. See, the cross is the comfort, cleansing, and power to change that come through God's redemptive love in Christ. Jesus gives us himself at the cross. And in that, remakes us from the inside out. Remakes us from the inside out. That's the cross. Meaning the heat happens. That's daily life. That's the world we live in. Our, our, our bent is to respond with the thorns in an ungodly way, and yet the cross confronts us and, and encounters us, and Jesus lives within us and changes us from the inside out, meaning that we can actually produce fruit rather than thorns. The fruit is the new godly response to the same old pressures as the result of God's power at work in the heart. The only way we can confront the same temptations and trials in a new way is if we are not, to use the Apostle Paul's language, relying on the works of the flesh, but being led by and soaked by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. John Esau brilliantly a few weeks ago um, unpacked what works of the flesh truly means. It's unaided human effort. But the result of that is the thorns. When we try to do it on our own, when we're confronted with daily heat and situations, our bent is, I'm just going to power through this thing. But you know what? Bitterness, envy, these things come about because we're relying on ourselves. But if we could be led by, after encountering the cross, and walk by the Spirit relying on Christ, we truly can be transformed See, when with Joseph, they sold Joseph and felt guilty for decades because of it. As that Proverbs 14 passage says, they had rotting bones. With Benjamin, they are able to celebrate with him. The thing about the gospel is that if you have envy, jealousy, or covetousness in your life, confronted with the gospel, working it through, seeing the cross, we can actually, when somebody gets something that we think, oh, we can actually celebrate that person, give glory to God with that person for that great thing in their lives. Rather than envy them, we can celebrate with them. That is a gospel confrontation. That is a sign that the gospel is working in and through you, that you can let go of those things. 
and celebrate well with others. Are you good at that? Do you celebrate others' accomplishments, the good things in other people's lives? Or, ah, I wish that was me. Let the gospel confront that in your life and let your envy turn to celebration. Secondly, the fear of these brothers is encountered with love. Look at verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The men did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Dude's going to take our donkeys. Joseph is actually working out of loving kindness. He's saying, I want to have you over for a great meal. I'm going to lavish you guys with a banquet. This, I'm freaking out here because these, this is about the money. We, took, we had the money. It was replaced. They think we're thieves. We're going to go there. They're going to turn us into slaves and take our donkeys. See, the brothers view Joseph's kindness as a trick. But then they are reassured. Look at all, look at all of these ways in, in, in which we see the kindness and the love of Joseph being displayed. They get there and they see the steward of the house They tell him about the money and the situation, and the steward reassures them about the money. Peace to you, verse 23. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Okay. And then it goes on. Then the steward brings Simeon out to them. Simeon is alive and well, and, and they allow Simeon to join the brothers. He gets to be a part of the banquet. Then... They were given water for their feet and food for their donkeys. Their donkeys weren't taken. They were given fodder for their feet to be washed and food for their animals. This is a sign of honor. They were treated as friends, not enemies. And then Joseph arrived and spoke kindly to them. Very different than chapter 42 when he's testing them. He arrived, spoke kindly to them, inquired about their father, and seeing Benjamin He blessed him, removing himself full of emotion. He broke down and wept privately. This is the heart of a tender, compassionate, loving man. And finally, a feast was prepared for them. The day before they were on the verge of starvation, they were coming to Egypt because they had no food. And now they were sitting at the governor's house with the feast of all feasts, the best in the land. From one day to the next, It has absolutely changed. Dining with Joseph where he showered them with love and kindness. See, this love and kindness broke down their fears. There's an old saying, and I think it's right. A person must first be slain by the law before he can be resurrected by the gospel. A person must first be slain by the law before he can be resurrected by the gospel. I believe that's true. What the law does is it actually reveals to us that we're sinners. God gave the law and said, follow this meticulously. God's people aimed to do that, but what the law revealed was that they couldn't measure up. If they could follow the law perfectly, well, then they would merit salvation in their own right. But what every single person who has tried to 
absolutely meet the requirements of the law, what the law shows them is, I can't do it. Therefore, I need rescue. Therefore, I need saving. And that's a terrifying place to be if you don't know what comes next. See, the law terrifies. And it's only in seeing that we don't measure up, it's only seeing that we are that sinful, that's what the law shows us, that the sweetness of the gospel can ah, sink into our hearts. So the law terrifies. But you know, you know what truly draws people to faith? I believe it's the winsome love of Jesus displayed in the gospel. It's the loving kindness, isn't it? Draws us in the love, that kindness. See, the law terrifies, and it should probably even more than it does. But the love of Christ draws. 1 John 4, verse 15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and and God abides in him. Revolves around love. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Yet so many people view God as angry and therefore operate out of fear. When for those who confess Jesus as the Lord of their lives, he is pursuing us with great loving kindness. Johann Staupitz was the prior of the Augustinian monastery Martin Luther entered as a young man. One day he said to Martin Luther, God is not angry with you. Do not be angry with him. God is not angry with you, Martin. Do not be angry with him. And it was then when Luther saw that God had quenched his wrath against him at the cross and was now reaching out to him in love that the future Protestant reformer was transformed. That it wasn't an angry God looking down at him saying, earn it more, earn it more, earn it more. That he had paid for it. That the merit was on Christ on the cross. And so God could pursue him with great love as his son. But My question is though, is fear the driving force in your life or the gracious love of God? Are you Martin Luther in the monastery before that conversation or are you Martin Luther after? He was at a monastery. You're at church. But what's the driving force? Fear or the loving kindness of your Savior? I'm going to do something very 2001 and quote Bono, okay? (laughs) One night on Larry King Live, Larry King was interviewing Bono, one of the most famous rock stars in the world, and Bono was talking about his commitment to Christ and how he was trying to live out Christ's love in the world. And it was the Christian Christian commitment of this rock star that prompted Larry King to ask an important question. What makes Christianity different from all the other religions of the world, he asked. What does Christianity have to offer that the other religions do not? Great question. Bono paused for a moment and then said, All the other religions of the world, in one way or another, teach karma. But only Jesus offers grace. 
In all the other religions of the world, people end up having to pay a penalty for their sins. Only Jesus Christ, by his grace, makes it possible for people to be delivered from the consequences of the sins that they have committed in this life. See, karma really boiled down says you've got to do more good than bad. You've got to outweigh the bad with good. So therefore, if you do something terrible, something, something bad's coming towards you. That's, that, that's essentially karma. So the grace of God is diametrically opposed to that. The way that people can be delivered from the consequences of the sins they have committed in this life. But after a poignant pause, Bono added, sadly, all too often, the church contrary to Jesus, teaches karma. Most of the time, the church teaches karma instead of offering grace, he says. I think far too many times we know that to be true. Pull up your bootstraps. Do better. Christians don't look like that, so look like this. Get it together. Put the pressure on people to get it right, to merit it, to earn it. We teach karma with all of those things when grace has been offered. Far too often, I believe, the church at large is proclaiming behavior modification rather than the riches of the grace of God. Can I tell you, we're exactly like those brothers at the banquet that day. And Joseph is exactly like Christ who lavishes his love and kindness on his brothers. There is a parable that I love. I preached a number of years ago. It's just stuck with me. Luke chapter 12, and in this parable, it says this, verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Meaning, those who are his, those who have confessed Jesus as Lord and are his followers are his disciples, when Jesus comes again, do you know what this verse says, what this parable says? Jesus himself, the Savior, will serve his people. He will beckon us to sit down at the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, meaning he is the groom, we are the bride, his church, and he sits us down. This is what eternity looks like. Sits us down at the banquet table, and Jesus dresses himself as one who serves, meaning he takes the robe that goes down to the ankle, tucks it in, shortens it up, rolls up his sleeves. Why? So he can move around, serving us as we recline, serve us with loving kindness, a banquet. See, look, we have been in famine in our lives And he says, you know what life in me and for all eternity looks like? Feasting at my banquet table. I'm going to come around and top up your cup. I'm going to come around and bring you seconds. Jesus says, let me be the one who showers you as your host with loving kindness. And yet many of us sit here this morning and are terrified of God, thinking I've got to do this thing right. I've got to get this part of me right, or I don't get him. He says, no. No. Jesus came to save you and to serve you, to lavish you with his loving kindness. I know there's a number of you who need to hear it because I feel like I need to hear it.
simply come to the cross and say, open-handed, I need you because I don't measure up. And Jesus says, great, let me take it from here. I'm going to build into you. I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to change you from the inside out. I'm going to use you for my glory. I'm going to take your envy. I'm going to make you celebrate with people. I'm going to take your fear and I'm going to love you let you be my agents of love in this broken, hurting world. Don't fear me anymore. I have a reverence for a holy God who has power over all things. That's a healthy thing. But don't fear me in a way that keeps you from me. I, I want to draw you in. I want to serve you, says Jesus, just like this brother who has been so wronged, sits his brothers down with tears in his eyes, puts himself together, and serves them a feast. That's the gospel. And last week, lastly, if we can't see it any clearer in this text, we will see it probably most clearly, one of the most clear places in this whole story of Joseph. We will see betrayal substituted for sacrifice. We are going to see substitution shown to us here. There is one final test that Joseph puts on these brothers, and it's in chapter 44. It's really the, the thing that happens in chapter 44 Joseph goes to his steward and says, take my silver cup, put it in Benjamin's bag, send them off. When they're a little ways down the road, go to them and say, whoever, one of you has stolen the governor's silver cup, and whoever's bag I find it in, you're becoming his slave, and I'm bringing you back to Egypt. Go, do it. He does. He gets there. It's a really kind of funny story. He gets there. The steward says to the brothers, one of you has the silver cup. Who stole it? The brothers are shocked. They know they haven't stolen the silver cup. But rather ignorantly, they say, we have not done this. Whoever has the silver cup in their bag, kill that guy. The rest of us will become slaves in Egypt. And the steward says, let it be as you say. Whoever's, whoever's bag I find the silver cup in, he will be the servant and the rest will go free. It's kind of like, John, you owe me $1,000. And John says, no, I owe you $10,000. I say, let it be as you say. You owe me $1,000. It just seems like crazy, like that doesn't make any sense. But it makes perfect sense from Joseph's point of view. You know why? They find the silver cup in Benjamin's bag. What, what can the rest of the brothers do? Benjamin's not getting killed. The brothers aren't going to be slaves. Benjamin is supposed to go as a slave to Egypt. The brothers are free to go home. That's what Joseph wanted. So that's what happens here. Does that sound familiar? A brother becomes a slave in Egypt, and as he's being shipped off, the rest of the brothers head on home, dip a robe in blood, show their father, they deceive. Benjamin's caught with the cup. He's being dragged back to Egypt, but do you see what happens? It says the brothers tore their clothes. The brothers actually begin to mourn. In chapter 37, when they bring the robe back to Jacob, Jacob tears his clothes. He mourns as an, and is in anguish. Here, Benjamin is going to be shipped off into slavery and the brothers tear their clothes and they mourn, they grieve for their father. They're not tricking him this time, they're anguished. This is absolutely opposed to what they did last time. And then what happens next? It says they pack up the donkeys and they all head back together. Incredible. 
They get there together. Joseph confronts them, and Judah steps forward. This is the betrayer. This is the guy in, in chapter 37. Says, Let's sell our brother. Let's make a profit on him. But Judah now goes to Joseph, and he actually says this really interesting thing in verse 16. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how do we clear ourselves? We're innocent, he's saying. And then the very next set thing he says is, God has found out the guilt of your servants. He's saying both. In this situation about the cup, we're actually not guilty. But we are guilty men. God has found us guilty. He's actually, for the first time, confessing to someone other than just the the band of brothers. Outside of them, he's saying, we're guilty men. And then he goes on. This is actually the longest monologue in all of Genesis. It's Judah here. And he says all the way down in verse 33, Now therefore, please let your servant, that's Judah himself, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. The betrayer is substituting himself. He is sacrificing himself. He is, in, he is willing to be enslaved himself so his brother can go free Judah is transformed from one who sells his brother as a slave to one who is willing to be the slave for his brother. This is a man whose life has been transformed. Can people change? Yes, they can, by the grace of God. Judah went from wanting to kill and ending up selling Joseph into slavery to offering his own life in the place of Benjamin. God works this kind of transformation throughout Scripture. There are many things I could tell you. Look at the Apostle Paul. On the night Jesus was facing an unjust trial, his disciple Peter was lingering around, and people said, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you one with Jesus? Don't you hang out with Jesus? Aren't you his follower? No, I'm not. No, that's not me. You've got the wrong guy. Denies Jesus three times, and yet Jesus empowers him to become the kind of apostle in ministry so transformed that when he stands up to preach at the beginning of Acts, 3,000 people come to faith because he proclaims the gospel. Who gets the glory for such transformation? God does. Who gets the glory for such a transformation in Judah that he goes from a guy so envious with so much hate that he sells a brother to so much love, to so much care that he would lay it down for his brother. God gets the glory. God does that. God changes lives. And he does the same thing today. That's what he does. Jesus says of himself in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he did it. Jesus became a substitute in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, for us, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. This is the greatest exchange. This is the greatest deal that has ever happened. We're sinful. Jesus is perfectly righteous. Jesus dies on the cross taking our sin, our wretchedness, our depravity upon himself and dying there and saying, hey, while I'm at it, I want to give you my perfection. And a little switcheroo takes place. Sin dealt with on the cross. God's wrath satisfied in the cross so he could look upon a sinner like you, a sinner like me, and lavish us with loving kindness. That's the trade. 
That's the exchange. Jesus substituted himself for us. Jesus is the elder brother who looks at us and says, I will die in their place. Let them go free. And God says, okay. But where Judah and Joseph and the brothers are met with mercy, there is no way out for Jesus. And so he climbs up on that cross. And they mock him and say, come on down. And though he could have brought a legion of angels and done it in an instant, he said, no, because my work is to substitute for my younger brothers and sisters. So he sacrificed himself there for us. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. I know my own and my own know me. And just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Is that not good news? This is the gospel. These are some sinful, jealous, envious, deceitful men met with a gospel of many colors. You you and I might think ourselves good when we get right down to the nitty-gritty of life, when the heat comes, we're sinful, we're selfish, we're envious, and we're deceitful. That's just the start of it. And we are met with a Savior who willingly, lovingly lays his life down for his friends. Doesn't call us enemies doesn't call us servants, doesn't call us slaves. He calls us friends and beckons us in. Would you sit in that with me this morning? Let's pray together. I invite the worship team to come up. We will respond together. I truly believe that after we hear God's word in these kinds of ways, we all have some sort of repentance to bring, thanksgiving to bring, celebration to bring to the cross to our Savior. Let's pray together and and then let's do that. Well, God, I praise you for your word. I praise you that a story from a few thousand years ago is our story as well. We are a bunch of brothers who need the hardships of life actually to, um, to refine us in a fire that actually makes us useful for your service and helps us to see the excellencies of your glory. We want to look upon your glory together this morning. And Lord, I pray that where there is envy towards others, that by your strength, that by walking with the Spirit, we would actually be able to celebrate well with those around us blessings that you pour out. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are often motivated by fear rather than your loving kindness or view you as angry and return it with either fear or anger ourselves. Lord, I pray that we would see you for how you truly see your children. You've come to serve. You've come to lavish. You've already dealt with our sin on the cross, so would we but just accept that? I pray we would. Thank you, Jesus, for being the ultimate substitute. 
with no way out, you bore the cross and its shame so that we could go free. We praise you for that truth. We respond and worship together now. In Jesus' name.